Romans chapter 1, verses 5 through 7 is our text for today. Romans chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. This is the fourth sermon in a series through the New Testament book of Romans. Today's message is 38 handwritten pages. Title of today's sermon is, You Had One Job. Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. As I preach today, I want you to keep in mind throughout the sermon that God loves you. Listen as I read the first seven seven verses of Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray with me, please. Our Father in heaven, today as we contemplate these three verses, we are already joyful, even in reading them and seeing the wonderful things that you have done through us, uh, for, for us through your mercy and through your grace. And Lord, we want to understand this more. Lord, we want to experience it more deeply. And I pray, dear Lord, that is what will happen today. I pray, dear God, that your grace and, and, and the fact that you love us will, Lord, so pervade our thinking and so overtake our emotions uh, that we, Lord, will be able to think of little else or even nothing else except for the fact that you have loved us in Christ Jesus. Lord, that is not something that I have the preaching skill to accomplish. That is something that only you can do by your spirit. And so, Lord, help me to preach compassionately and accurately. And Lord, I pray that the people will listen attentively. But Lord, what we are begging for and what we are asking for is that your spirit will do something very special that neither the pastor nor the listener can do. And that is, please show us uh, the beauty of Jesus in these verses. And that is what we ask for, the glory of Jesus In the name of Jesus, amen. I have no outline today. Uh, I'm simply going to talk through the text phrase by phrase so that perhaps after I have done that, uh, you will understand the passage a little bit better. And then what I'm going to do after I have talked through the verses, I'm going to circle back and I'm going to make two observations by applying two phrases in verse 5. But concerning the title, the title, You Had One Job. It's a phrase that is used um, which means you had one job. You had one job and you were not able 
to do it. Now, I'm going to apply that phrase to our second point of application, and it means you had primarily one responsibility, which was simple, and it was obvious, and you couldn't even get that done. Let me give you quick ex- quick six quick examples of people who had one job, and you decide whether or not they were able to get that job done. Here's the first one of those. The first one and this is the Ollage of Architecture and Planning. It is the Ollage of Planning. Here's the second. You, you had one job. Here's the second. And that is, uh, Jesus was working today. Uh, here we see someone that was to have put water there, and they stacked wine underneath it. You had one job. You had one job. Here's the third one. Pick up your shovel. Here's the next one. There you have it. All right. Uh, how about the next one? <laughs> T-shirt design. Another one. I would like you to take the bananas and put them in a place where people can purchase them. Okay. Long yellow things. You had one job. You had one job. Well, as I said, at the end of the sermon, in about an hour from now, we will circle back and we will look at the fact that Paul had one job. That was to bring glory to Jesus Christ. Was he able to do that? We will look at that at the end of the message. But as a runway leading up to these three verses, let's review what was previously covered. Paul is the author of this book we call Romans. Uh, It was written to the church in Rome, uh, written about the year A.D. 57 from Corinth. Now, it's about 600 miles as the crow flies from Corinth to Rome. Paul wrote it in order to clarify some misunderstandings that the Jewish Christians were having with the Gentile Christians and, and vice versa. But before addressing that problem, which he starts to do in chapter 9, he builds his credibility by laying out in detail his gospel. And the preface to Paul addressing his initial reason for writing is eight chapters long. First eight chapters are Paul's gospel. And he starts off in a customary ancient Near East letter-writing form by greeting them. That is, verses 1 through 7. He does so by introducing himself and his topic, which is the gospel of God, which is rooted in the Old Testament scriptures, which was concerning God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, which brings us to our passage today. And it will conclude the salutation of verses 1 through 7. And our text for today is verses 5 through 7. Let me read those verses again. Through whom, that is through Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's take these phrases apart one by one. Through whom? Uh, That is through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have received grace and apostleship. Uh, The we there 
He is a literary device. He is not referring to multiple people. He's not referring to himself and other apostles. Uh, he's only referring to himself there. And he is speaking, he's using the word we, but he's just referring to himself. And, and, and what did he receive? Well, it says grace and apostleship. These are not two different items, but it means the free gift or the grace of apostleship. In other words, I didn't work for my apostleship. It was graciously and freely given to me by Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, for their purposes, when they would read the words grace and apostleship, they would see the humility of Paul in saying, this is something, this is not something that I earned or I achieved or I climbed the ladder of success to become an apostle. It was freely given to me, which shows his humility. And also for their purposes, and most importantly, this meant that Paul had authority over them, spiritually speaking, and because he was an apostle, they needed to listen to him. For our purposes today, here's what this means. There are no more living apostles. In order to be an apostle, you had to be a witness of the resurrected Christ, which Paul was. Acts 1.22 spells out, you want to be an apostle? You had to have seen the risen Christ. Now, the second thing you needed to do in order to be an apostle, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, is you have to be able to per perform signs and wonders and mighty works. Paul did, uh, but we do not have those that can do that today. Also, apostles were the foundation of the church, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Well, the church has already received its foundation. The church has already been established. It was established by the apostles, those who saw the risen Christ and those who were able to perform miracles. But there are no modern-day apostles. But when Paul wrote this, there were apostles, and he was one of them, and he received his apostleship through the grace or the free gift of God, and he wrote with apostolic authority meaning that he had the authority of Christ himself. It's pretty common today that you will hear people say something like, well, as I'm reading the Bible, I listen to the words of Jesus, and with the words of Paul, I kind of take it with a grain of salt. That's just Paul. It doesn't carry the same authority of Jesus. And that is wrong. That is errant theology. Paul, by grace, received apostleship from Jesus, and so what he says is every bit as true and every bit as authoritative as the words of Christ. Uh, an apostle was one who was an authorized vessel sent out as a, a messenger of God with full authority to speak for God, and Paul was a, an apostle, and that apostleship he received freely or by grace. And so you ask the question, to what end then, or for what purpose, did he uh, have that apostleship? And that is in our next phrase, which is in verse 5, to bring about the obedience of faith. What does the phrase, the obedience of faith, mean? Well, it could mean a number of things. I'm going to give you my best guess. I think that obedience of faith means the obedience which consists of faith in the gospel. In other words, it demonstrates their obedience to God 
by believing the gospel. Or to put it another way, the obedience to believe the gospel. Now, why do I interpret it this way? Well, there are a number of reasons. One of them is because Paul uses this same phrase or these same concepts of obedience and faith in another place in Romans, and in that verse, it is very clear as to what it means. Romans chapter 10, verse 16. Same book, same author. Uh, here are the words, obedience and faith, linked together with more clarity. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. There, what is obedience? Obedience is to believe the gospel. So I'm, I'm going to take those same words, put them back into chapter 1, assuming that the same author in the same book is using the same meaning. Once again, at the end of the book of Romans, another place where clearly the obedience of the faith means the obedience to believe the gospel, that is in Romans chapter 16, verse 26, where Paul talks about the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. So, faith in the gospel is the obedience. Now, some would argue, and they would say, no, what this actually means is that once you have faith, it will produce obedience in your life. It will produce holy living. Well, I'm not going to argue that that is false. In fact, it is true. Uh, they will say something like, well, if we indeed believe the gospel and we have true saving faith, then the lives which we lead will be lives of obedience to the word of God. Amen. I believe that that's true. Yes, we will. And if we don't, then we are not saved. If we live in sin, we are not saved. But however true that may be, that is not what Paul is saying here. Romans chapter 1 verse 5 is not saying that true faith produces obedient living, although true faith does produce obedient living. What he is saying is his apostleship has as its goal the call to command people to obey God by having faith in the gospel. I think I'm right, but I might be wrong because both interpretations are theologically true. But if you think about it, even if I'm wrong, you can't have true faith unless it produces works. James chapter 2, verse 26, faith without works is dead. And at the same time, you can't have true obedience to God, which is pleasing to God, without true faith, because that which is not of faith is sin. So obedience and faith are always going to be working together. There's a story that comes to us from the 1940s. Uh, there was a gentleman <clears throat> that uh, was called off to war to serve in World War II. Uh, he had two identical twin sons. Uh, their names were Juan and Jamal. Uh, this man uh, with these two identical twin sons, Juan and Jamal, goes off to World War II. We, we, when they think that he uh, has died, they don't know. But when he finally comes back to the United States, he is then separated from his two sons, Juan and Jamal, and they are separated from one another. And for 20 years, none of them knew where the other was. Uh, as the story goes, about 20 years later, the father walked into a restaurant, and to his shock, he saw his son Juan, 
and he was reunited with him. And the father said to Juan, I wish that I could only see your brother as well. To which Juan replied, well, dad, that's not necessary because if you've seen Juan, you've seen Jamal. If you've seen Juan, you've seen Jamal. When you've seen true saving faith, you have also seen obedience as well. You're looking at one, you're also looking at the other. When you see genuine obedience and works and repentance, you have also seen true faith. Both are true. But I believe that Romans chapter 1 verse 5 means obedience to believe the gospel. The next phrase Paul speaks to the motive of the heart. And this is where, in a little bit, we're going to get back to that sermon title, You Had One Job. And what is that motive? Verse 5, for the sake of his name. Now, just look at the little word name. Name does not mean his title, but name means all that Christ is in his totality. And the sake of his name means for the cause of Jesus Christ, or for the glory. Paul says, my motive is singular. I, I, I have one job, and my job is this, to glorify Jesus Christ. We're going to come back to that, so hang on to that phrase. The final phrase in verse 5 defines his mission, and that is, among all the nations. Now, this also can mean one of two things. This can either mean specifically to the Gentiles, uh, and that is the non-Jews. And that makes sense, and the reason that that makes sense is because Paul identifies his calling from Christ to be the apostle to the Gentiles. We read earlier from Galatians chapter 1, verse 16, where Jesus Christ was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And then he says really clearly in Romans eleven thirteen, I am an apostle to the Gentiles. And then in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, though I am the very least of the apostles, this grace, there you have the grace of apostleship, this gift of apostleship, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And there are many other passages in the New Testament in which Paul says, I am the apostle to the Gentiles, amen, hallelujah. However, in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, I don't think that his point here is the uniqueness of his ministry to the Gentiles or his Gentile commission. I think that he is referring here to both Jews and Gentiles which are in the nations or the people groups of the world. In other words, I think that the ESV got it right. I'm going to give you three reasons why I think that he's talking about the nations, which are both Jews and Gentiles. First of all, let's remember the purpose of his letter, and that is to bring about unity and understanding between Jews and Gentiles and to get them on the same page. If he starts off his writing by isolating one group, that is the Gentiles, 
would it not then ostracize the other group and be counterproductive? So I don't think he's coming out of the box saying, I am only here ministering to Gentiles. The second reason I think he's talking to both Jews and Gentiles is because throughout the book of Romans, at various points, he is going to speak to one group and then another and then to both groups. And so throughout the book, he's going to be talking to both Jews and Gentiles. But the third reason and the main reason why I think that he is not referring to just Gentiles here when he says all of the nations is based upon his own ministry and his own missionary strategy, which was always to go to the Jew first. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first. Now you watch Paul on his missionary journeys and what is he going to do? He is going to go on the Sabbath day to the synagogue, open the Old Testament scriptures and preach to the Jews. That was always his strategy. Now I will grant you, as you read the book of Romans, it's going to be very clear that the majority of the people in the church of Rome were Gentiles. And they seem to get the majority of the content in the book of Romans. But for now, Romans chapter 1, verse 5, includes both Jews and Gentiles. They are the nations. And so, put it all together, and what do you have in verse 5? You have Jesus gifting Paul to be an apostle, that is, an authoritative messenger, who is sent to preach a message that all people everywhere, both Jews and Gentiles, in all the nations, should obey the command and have faith in the gospel. Why should this be done? So that the name of Jesus Christ might be promoted for the sake of his name. That, I think, is what verse 5 means, which brings us to verse 6. Let's read it together. Including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. In other words, that ministry, which is described in verse 5, is my overarching call to all people in all places. Uh, This is what my life is about. You want to look at what my overarching ministry is to all people in all places. That is in verse 5. But verse 6 says, For your purposes, dear brethren, in Rome, you are included as recipients of my ministry, my apostleship. It would be like I stood, if I were to stand before you and to say, I am a world-renowned chef. You can look at my cookbooks, you can watch me on television, you can read articles which have been written about me. I am a world-renowned chef. That's verse 5. Verse 6 is, and guess what? I'm coming to your house and I'm going to be cooking for you. You are included in this ministry, including you. And here's who you are. You are the called, the called. What is this calling? Uh, Three times in this opening salutation, Paul uses the word call or calling or called. This is God's effectual call, which is the fourth of the fifth points of Calvinism, also known as irresistible grace. The effectual call is one that works. The word effectual means one which is effective, one which works. So when I stand up every Sunday morning and preach, 
And, and it's not just me, it's, it's Paul, it's Charles Spurgeon, it's Billy Graham, it's any other preacher. When we stand up and preach, we are issuing a call. And this is a gospel call. And the call is, come to Jesus. Uh, uh, see God as holy. See yourself as a wicked, undeserving sinner. See Jesus as perfect and as your substitute. See Jesus dying in your place for your sins. See him risen and reigning and ready to forgive and call upon him, repent, believe the gospel, the obedience of the faith, call out to him and ask him to save you. Now that, humanly speaking, is a gospel call. It is an outward call. It is from my voice to your ears. But that is not the call that Paul is referring to here in verse 6. The call in verse 6 is not from the voice of the preacher, although the voice of the preacher is used in the process, but it is the voice of the Holy Spirit, not to your ears, but to your heart. And it is not an optional invitation for you to wrestle with and to consider and then to contemplate and to decide upon. It is an effectual call. It is an irresistible call. It is a God saying to you, get over here and get over here right now. It's a loving summons from God, and those who get it move immediately and quickly and willingly and gladly and desperately to Jesus for their salvation. I love this verse from Psalm 65, verse 4, which explains effectual calling. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near. Romans chapter 8, verse 30 uh, speaks about the fact that those who receive this call are going to be saved. Romans 8, 30. Those whom he called, he also justified. In other words, if God gives you this call, you are coming. 100% of the people whom God calls will be justified or saved, and 100% of the people who are justified will be glorified, and they will be the only ones who are saved and the only ones that are glorified. And being called is not up to you. But if you get the call, the inward, effectual call, you will come. Come where? Well, verse 6, the next phrase, to belong to Jesus Christ. You are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now, this doesn't simply mean that your status changes from lost to saved, from damned to redeemed, although that does happen. But the language here is of belonging, and belonging means that you no longer belong to you, that you are not your own, but you are now the possession of another. You are now the possession of Christ Jesus. As it says in Song of Solomon, chapter two, verse six, my beloved is mine and I am his. You now belong to Christ. Or as it says in first Corinthians chapter six, at the end of verse 19 and the beginning of verse 20, you are not your own. You are not your own. You don't belong to you. You are not your own. But 
you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. And what is that price? It's the blood of Jesus. It is as if Jesus walked into a store and said to his father, I would like to purchase this list of people. How much is it going to cost me? And God the Father said, it's going to cost you your life. It's going to cost you your blood. I will execute you and I will spend my wrath on you so that this list of people that you have put in front of me may be purchased. And Christ gladly said, yes, that is what I would like to buy. And Christ died for our sins, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Jesus paid it all. And now Christ, through the preaching of the gospel, by the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit, brings his purchased ones into his own possession by granting the obedience of faith. And when that happens, we belong to him. Old illustration, hokey illustration, but still a good illustration. Little boy builds a boat, little toy boat. He paints it. He puts it together. He goes down to the pond. Strong wind comes along. It blows the boat away. He loses the boat. Someone finds the boat, takes it to a pawn shop, sells it to the pawn shop. The little boy walks into the pawn shop and says, that's my boat. The owner says, great, you want the boat? Here's the price. The little boy pays for the boat. He takes it home, and that boat is precious to him where the little boy says, you are mine, you belong to me, I made you and I bought you. And that is what Jesus says, you are mine, I made you and I bought you. We belong to him. Paul writes to the called saved brethren at Rome and says, I'm corresponding with those who belong to Jesus. And I ask you today, as I preach the gospel to you, do you belong to Jesus? Have you repented? Have you been granted the obedience of faith? Are you saved? If not, today the command is, go to Jesus and be saved. Moving on now to verse 7. To all those in Rome. We're not exactly sure at this point what the church structure was at Rome, but it is the church there, it is believers there, to all those in Rome, and we know that it is saved people in Rome, to all those in Rome, here's the next phrase, who are loved by God and called to be saints. Uh, let's look first of all at the fact that these people in Rome were loved by God. Every week, I try to remind you that God loves you. Uh, to all who are in Bayside, who have been called and belong to Jesus I want to tell you that God loves you. I think if a preaching genie were to pop out of a bottle and say, Pastor Ed, you have one homiletical wish, whatever you like, like if you, you're, you're going to get behind that pulpit and there's going to be something that you're going to say which is going to work completely, I will grant you whatever wish you have. The one wish that I would have would be very quick and very easy, and that is that I would have the ability to persuade you deep in your heart that you would never forget that God loves you. That's the one thing that I would want you to know. Or as Paul puts it in Ephesians 3.19, to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. I really want you to know 
that God loves you. Dear child of God, do you know that God loves you? Uh, Not just theologically, not just intellectually, not just factually uh, that God loves you, but do you know deep within your heart and do you feel and do you sense and, 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 and does the fact of the love of God just infiltrate every fiber of your being? Do you move from hour to hour and day to day with the understanding and the joy that God loves you? Celebrated an anniversary on Valentine's Day. It was 40 years ago, February 14th, 1983, that I took my then-girlfriend, Anna Strain, on a date. At the close of the date, we went to get dessert at the Flamingo Room. Uh, We would always get the same dessert. That was our thing. It was coffee ice cream with uh, strawberry topping, Uh, three scoops of coffee ice cream with strawberry topping. We'd finished our dessert. We were sitting in the car outside the restaurant. It was a cool but not cold February evening, Valentine's Day. I had been contemplating this for some time. We had been dating for a few months at this point. I thought the time was right, and I looked at her, and I said for the very first time, I love you. She looked back at me with all of the sincerity in the world that she could muster. And she said, really? (laughs) True? I love you. There you go. Okay. You had one job. All right. You had one job. A few weeks ago, I was visiting my grandson, my son Parker and his family, but particularly there, spending time with my oldest grandson, Parker. And um, he, he is just so dear and so precious to me. It reminds me a lot of his father. Uh, when his father was a little boy, I, I used to try as hard as I could to tell Parker that I loved him. I would stand him there and I'd say, Parker, I just adore you. I, I love you with all of my heart. And he would look at me sincerely. And, and after I would finish, I, I, he would say, I'd say, what do you think of that? He'd say, that's good. You know, it, it, and so a few weeks ago, I wrote a text to Haddon. He doesn't have a phone, but I sent it to his father and his mother. And I said, Please convey this to Haddon. I wrote it from the airport as I was leaving him. I just needed to communicate my love for him. And I wrote, "Um, Dear Haddon, I can't stop thinking about you. I must tell you that I see great things in you. Uh, The way you look out for Oliver and your sisters is so impressive. Uh, Also, you said some really nice things to me that touched my heart. You thanked me for taking you to the goodwill and noticed how much money it cost. Uh, that's a real sign of maturity. I'm proud of you. And then today, you thanked me again for taking you to goodwill and for playing ball with you. You are such a polite, you are so polite and thoughtful of others. And I was very impressed with how you discussed salvation with me and Madison. I love spending time with you. You are a delight. Uh, you touch me very, very deeply. I want you to know that I'm very pleased with your progress. Keep up the good work. I love you with all my heart 
as I said, I can't stop thinking about you. Live for Jesus, pa-pa-pa, which is what he calls me. End text, send. About a week later, I called Parker up, said, hey, did you, did you get the text? He goes, oh yeah, I got it. Would well, you read it to, to Haddon? Yeah. I said, well, what did he say? He said, sat there, he listened to it. He looked at me and he said, that's good. <laughs> that's a seven-year-old. Do you understand the disproportionate expression of love from a grandfather who views his grandson dearly and a grandson who's not opposed to the idea of his grandfather loving him but doesn't see it as much. Likewise, friends, I wish that you more and more would begin to experience and to concentrate on and to enjoy how much God loves you and the degree to which he delights in you. There is great disparity between how much God actually loves us and how much we think or experience the love of God or concentrate upon that love. It's my prayer that those of you who are loved by God would increasingly know the love of God in your hearts and communicate it by pointing others to Christ. Well, those two phrases in verse 7, loved by God, and then there's the second phrase, and called to be saints, they go together. Because both of those expressions are terms of endearment that God frequently used to speak to his first covenant people, the nation of Israel. God would tell them that he loved them and that they were holy. For example, love, Jeremiah 31.3. God says of his people, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And Paul even reaffirms this in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 11, verse 28, that God loves Israel when he says that they, that is the, the, the Israelites, the people of Israel, are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. And not only love, but God would communicate to his people constantly that they were separate, that they were holy. And the phrase for being holy here is that there is a calling to be saints, a, a sanctification. And this also stems from the Old Testament. God would frequently tell his people that they were unique, that they were special, that they were separated. For example, in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you. That's what it means to be sanctified, separated you from the peoples uh, that you should be mine. And now the language which is given to the saints in the New Testament, moving from the Old Testament into the New Testament, is the language of love and holiness or love and sanctification. Uh, the word saint here literally means holy ones, and it doesn't refer to, to, to us being holy in or obedient in our conduct. Uh, it's a word that Paul uses of believers 38 times in his writings. It doesn't refer to our moral behavior. It doesn't prefer, refer to our pursuit of holiness although we must pursue holiness, but what it is talking about is the fact that we are the separated ones. You see, just as God loved 
Israel, so God loves the church. And just as God separated Israel, so God separated us as his church, those who belong to him in the new covenant. He loves us and he separated us as his unique people. Which brings us to the final phrase in verse 7, and that is grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The prayer for them is grace and peace. Now this is in its construction formal because this is how an ancient Near East salutation or greeting would go. Wouldn't have these exact words, but but, but the structure is there. But it is sort of a play on words because in using the words grace and peace, Paul is incorporating both Greek and a both Greek and Hebrew formula, both a a Gentile and Jew formula. Uh, when he says uh, grace, uh, this is a form of how Greeks would write letters. Now they would use a form of the word grace. Uh, our word, the Greek word for grace, which is used in the New Testament, is the word charis. Greeks, when they were writing, this is unsaved Greeks writing to one another, they would use the word karin, uh, which means greeting. And so Paul would slightly modify the typical use of the unsaved pagan Greek to move from greeting to grace. Uh, in our terms, it would be sort of like moving from uh, how you doing to may God bless you with unmerited favor, from greeting to grace. And this grace is a, a beautiful thought. It is a, it's a, it's a beautiful concept. In our Valley of Vision reading this morning, uh, let me reiterate what was already read. And the prayer is this. Oh Lord, we are astonished at the difference between our receivings and our deservings, between the state we are now in and our past gracelessness between the heaven we are bound for and the hell we merit. That is grace, that we are not getting what we deserve, but we are getting the unmerited free favor of God, and he wishes this grace upon him. He prays that the grace of God will be evident and abound in their lives. The second word is the word peace, and this is the Jewish or the Hebrew word or the way that Jews would greet one another with the word peace or Shalom. You put them together and what do you have? Grace and peace. And it's more than just a clever, polite, customary formula or greeting, but grace and peace is the gospel. Notice that the source of this is God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we have just completed only seven verses in Romans and already there have been three explicit references to God the Father and six explicit references to Jesus Christ. And what is it that God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ produce? It is grace and peace, or in other words, the gospel. The peace of God, which we have in our hearts, is because we have peace with God because of his grace or his unmerited gift of salvation through the work of Jesus. Let me read that again because I'm not sure that you were paying attention. This is the heart of the phrase, 
grace and peace. And that is that the peace of God, which we experience in our hearts, is because we are at peace with God. And the reason we are at peace with God is because of his grace or the gospel, the unmerited favor of salvation, which we through the obedience of faith, have exercised unto the salvation of our souls. And so may God and Jesus grant you both grace and peace. Now, as promised, I want to circle back to two items which we have already commented on. Both of them are in verse 5, and these will serve as our applications today. The first one is the phrase, the obedience of faith. I already told you what I believe my interpretation to be. Uh, The way that we obey is by having faith in the gospel. Implied in that word obedience is the idea of a command. Put on your thinking cap and process this. If there is obedience, by definition, then there has to have been a command. Martin Lloyd-Jones helped me a lot with this concept. That is that when you view the proclamation of the gospel as a command to be obeyed rather than um, uh, an invitation or a proposal for people to ponder, when you view the proclamation of the gospel as a command, it totally changes the confidence of the evangelist. Uh, Let me allow Lloyd-Jones to say it. It's a rather lengthy quote, but I think that you're going to find it helpful. Lloyd-Jones says, Sin is not just that which spoils my life and makes me feel miserable and unhappy. It, It is all that, but that is not the most important thing to say about sin. We all want to get rid of our problems, don't we? There is no great, there is a great danger that we shall think of the Lord Jesus Christ simply as someone who helps us get out of our difficulties. Sin is the refusal to listen to the voice of God. The original sin of man did not consist in murder or adultery. It consisted in this, that he stopped listening to the voice of God. He stopped obeying God. That is sin in its essence. God commands you to believe in his son. And if you do not believe in him, you are breaking the commandment. You are disobedient, end quote, and so profound. And so when we are sharing the gospel, we are not doing a sales pitch to offer people a better life. We're not even offering heaven, although that will be what they get. What we are doing in the offering of the gospel, in the preaching of the gospel, is we are speaking with the authority of God based upon his word, and we are commanding obedience to the word. We are commanding obedience. Specifically, we are commanding them to obey the gospel. I can't believe that I never saw this before. 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, puts it very clearly. And this is the commandment. By definition, commandments are either obeyed or they are disobeyed. And this is the commandment. What is the commandment, John? That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. 
It's very simple. Evangelists command people to believe. The people either obey or disobey. John chapter 6, verse 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. You offer a commandment, what are you doing? You're telling people to either obey or disobey. When you follow a commandment, what are you doing? You are obeying. When you don't follow a commandment, what are you doing? You are disobeying. Well, what was Paul's apostolic commission? It was to bring about the obedience of faith. And so know this, that if you are saved, you have obeyed. If you are not saved, God commands you this very day to believe in his son. We gather here every Sunday morning. Most of the people who come are saved. Some of you are not. If you are not saved, I'm so happy you are here. But you need to understand in very clear terms today, what you are receiving today is not an invitation to make up your mind and to contemplate this. You are receiving a command from God himself. And if you do not respond to the command to obey the gospel, you are disobeying. 2 Thessalonians 1.8, inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance upon those who do not obey the gospel, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as evangelists, we need to be kind, we need to be loving, we need to be winsome, we need to be polite, we need to live lives which are genuine. But at the end of the day, it is not an invitation to join us in the faith. It is a command to obey the gospel. What they do with the message is between them and God. Are you unsaved? Hear the command. Believe the gospel. Do so by exercising the obedience of faith. Are you saved? Share the gospel with authority, commanding the unsaved to believe. <clears throat> but make it clear that people are commanded to believe in Christ. And the second point of application, most importantly today, the thing I want to send you home with, the thing that I was most deeply moved by this week, that is our application concerning the phrase, for the sake of his name. Paul is saying, I had one job. What is the first question in the Westminster Shorter Confession of Faith? And that is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Paul says, I do many things, but my one primary goal, my one job is to glorify God. If I don't get this one thing done, then nothing else matters. So the question is, do you do what you do for the sake of his name, for his renown, for his cause, for his glory, as long as you are glorified? And this speaks to our motives. Why? Why do we do what we do in life? Why do we do what we do in the Christian life? Why do we do what we do in the church? Do you even think about why you do what you do? Often, I do not. 
I just do what I do, but I do not think about why I am doing what I am doing. I dare say that we often just do because we are creatures of habit, and that's what we have done before. Or we do what we do because that is what others expect. Or we do what we do because we will get in trouble if we don't do that. Or we do what we do so that we will look good. Or we do what we do so that we will feel good. Or we do what we do because maybe God will give me a prize if I live up to his expectations. Or we do what we do maybe because if we don't, he will zap us if we don't. Here's my challenge to you. Sit down this week, evaluate what you do, have a conversation with yourself, and ask this question. Why am I doing this? What is motivating me? And as you are silent and as you contemplate, you will if the Holy Spirit is guiding you, be led to think deeply about what your motives are. Now, please, grant it. I know that there are, in every decision that we make, secondary reasons. I'm asking, what is the primary reason? The primary reason for why we do whatever we do must be for the sake of his name, in other words, for the glory of God. You had one job. It is to bring glory to God. Jesus lived and died to bring glory to God. John 17, 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And we ought to walk as he walked. This past week, we were in our mission trip in Jamaica. As is customary when we are there, every Tuesday we go to the Golden Age Center which is their equivalent of the near-death experience. It is for older people. We will go there. We will do a devotional for them. We will do a craft with them. The doctors will be there, and we will sing some choruses with them. We go there, and, and, and it's, it's, we've been doing the same thing for uh, close to 20 years. It's a delightful time. Every Tuesday, we are in Jamaica. I was profoundly impacted this year when the deacon from the Buff Bay Circuit of Independent Baptist Church called a man forward to pray. The man happened to be wearing a tie. I immediately respected him. The man (laughs) was wearing a tie. It was not a good tie, but it was a tie nonetheless. He walks up to the front and he begins to pray. As he is praying, he is praying for the meeting. He is praying for the doctor's He is praying that we would be blessed. Everything is good. And then he adds this onto the end of his prayer. He says, but even if you do not do these things for us, O Lord, may you be glorified in what happens today. In other words, we want these blessings to come, but even if they don't, We have one job, and that is to glorify you. Whether we get better from the medicine or not, whether our craft comes together, whether we feel or sense anything or not, those are all wonderful benefits, but the man is praying, but God, the main thing that we want you to do is to bring glory to yourself. 
for the sake of his name. Lord, may you receive all the glory. You know, in life, we're going to go through suffering and failure, and we're going to flounder, and we're going to have long seasons of drought and discouragement, and we're going to pray for God to bless us, and we're going to work hard in order for things to get better in our lives. And that's not wrong. But whether things get better or not, we can still fulfill our purpose when we stop and say, I am not doing this for myself. I'm not doing this for the results. I am certainly not doing this for the accolades, but I'm doing what I am doing for the sake of his name. I have one job, and that is the glory of God. And the reason why is because he is worthy and because he is God and because he is good and because he is glorious and because we belong to him and because we love him and because he loves us and because he called us and because he grants us grace and because he grants us peace and because he died for us. For the sake of the name, we need to do everything that we do for the glory of God. And so as you examine your heart, what is your motive in day-to-day service in the church? May God's Spirit grant us a revival of properly aligning our motives whereby we can sing with the psalmist, Psalm 115, verse 3, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. All right, seven verses down, 426 to go. I hope you were able throughout the sermon today to remember that God loves you. Father in heaven, I pray, Lord, that we will by your spirit accurately assess our motives and Lord, whatever they might be right now, I pray that going forward, Lord, we would be changed to to be those who are primarily concerned with the sake of your name, the name of Jesus, the cause of Jesus, your glory. Lord, please cause us in our hearts, with our motives and our lives and our words to bring you glory. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.